You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 30th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show... Everyone who is listening to us, who will listen to us over the next minutes, the moment is now. Venezuela's opposition leader says the final stage of a plan to depose the president is underway. Can Nicolas Maduro survive or will he be gone by the end of the week? America warns Britain it may have to rethink sharing intelligence if the government allows the Chinese company Huawei to get involved in the UK's 5G network. My guests Terry Stiatsny and Isabel Hilton will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including She survived attempts by MPs to get rid of her, but can the British Prime Minister Theresa May defeat a leadership vote from grassroots members of her own party? All that plus the end of an era. Japan's Emperor Akihito abdicates after a 30-year reign, making him the country's first monarch to stand down from power in over 200 years. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Yes, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalist and author Terry Stiatsny and Isabel Hilton, who's editor of China Dialogue. So welcome both of you to the programme. Now, the final phase of Operation Liberty to overthrow Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro has begun. That's according to the opposition leader and presidential nemesis Juan Guaido. Mr Guaido has called on the army and public to stand with him on Wednesday when mass protests are planned to overthrow the Maduro regime, bringing it, in his words, to a definitive end. Government officials say that soldiers loyal to Mr Maduro have confronted what they call a small group of military traitors near the capital Caracas. They're also calling on Mr Maduro's supporters to rally in front of the presidential palace. Well, it's a fast-moving story. I can actually bring you up to date with the latest that we have so far. And indeed, um, the Brazilian government has has intervened. It's it's given its support to uh, Mr Maduro. But also as well, we've had remarks from um, Reuters witnesses who've said that they've seen men in military uniform accompanying Mr Guaido Guaido at the scene. They've been exchanging gunfire with soldiers who support the president. But also the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, he's urged maximum restraint in Venezuela to avoid violence. He's also offered to mediate between the different sides. Now, Isabel story which is very close to your heart because you were a correspondent in the Latin America region so obviously you've got a pretty good handle on what's been going on but look are we now in the end game for Venezuela or is it too soon to write off Nicolas Maduro? I think it's probably a bit soon. I mean, we have, you know, we've seemed to have been in the end game before. You may remember there was the, the, the great aid convoy, which was meant to come in from Colombia. I mean, it is absolutely clear that uh, a substantial part of the of the Venezuelan population, it, it's hard to tell exactly, you know, what proportion would like to see Maduro gone. And, and you know, there, I think there is very little future in this regime. But so far, you know, the army has not shown signs of defection en masse. Um, and, you know, the, the army, the, the, the chiefs of the army, the chiefs of the security services are largely appointed and 
paid for by Maduro, paid for in the sense that they're given access to business, they have, you know, they have a lot to lose, um, but they also have a lot of security to worry about. If Maduro goes, then they are absolutely in line for charges of corruption, for charges of all kinds of mm. you know, abuse of human rights. So un- unless and until they are given some kind of guarantee that, that they can survive a, a regime change, I don't think those army senior army officers are going to budge. And my concern in the Venezuelan situation is that I don't really see a power offering that kind of guarantee. The mm. Russians and the Chinese seem paralyzed. They have very little contact with the opposition. They're simply repeating, you know, I, I just checked Xinhua, just repeating Maduro's tweets that the army remains loyal. Um, and the current U.S. administration is a bit of a blunderbuss. Mm. So I'm not sure that subtle diplomacy of the kind that might get us through this without bloodshot has, uh, has been on the card. OK, let's look at this this point about uh, the, the army, Terry, because it appears at the moment that the opposition doesn't have the backing of the top brass. And yet, if you read between the lines for what Mr. Guaido is saying you do get the sense that there is some movement up there that maybe, just maybe, he's done enough to persuade some of the big guys to come over to his team. Yes, it's very, I mean, we, obviously, as you say, it's a very fast-moving story. We're getting a very piecemeal, you know, the odd images, some very dramatic images coming up on, on the news agencies just now of, you know, buses burning in the street and, and some very sort of horrific-looking uh, images of, you know, armoured personnel car- carriers driving into uh, into crowds of protesters. But we're not seeing the whole picture at the moment. Obviously, it's, it's very significant that most of this started off today with um, Guaido being near the... In Airbase at La Colotta, he was claiming that you know he did have some support from uh, from within the military, and also that one of his fellow opposition leaders has now apparently been released from house arrest. So mm. it suggests that whoever was supposed to be keeping him in house arrest is is no longer mm. no longer completely on, on board with that, and some, by some means he is he's been able um, to get out. Um, as you say, so much depends as well on you know the reaction not only of people in in the immediate immediate region, but you know in in the wider world and you know whether hopefully sort of any bloodshed or you know we've heard reports of shots being fired whether that can be avoided and and some of the things that other countries have been suggesting is that you know moving towards the idea of having another presidential election which it, it would be very difficult to do in the circumstances that we've got at the moment it's what everybody's asking for but in a country where mm. you know you haven't got reliable electricity supplies you haven't got reliable food supplies you've got people on the streets organizing that even with international help might still be very difficult yeah and, and as i want to go back to something which you said isabel about what Mr. Guido would have to to give to get the top brass on his side, because yes, they would want some sort of immunity, but also they've done very well out of this regime. They control very important resources, so presumably they're not going to hand those over in a hurry. But where does Mr. Maduro fit into this? Would some of them say, well, okay, then we'll back you just as long as the guy who fed us over the years is allowed to to get a nice bit of um, security somewhere, go into exile, live anonymously, live well, etc. Would would he would he factor in? Would he be factored into their thinking, or is it every man for himself? It, well, I think that you know the traditional the traditional thing is a helicopter to Havana and you know a nice villa um, it, by by the sea, uh, but. As I say, that has to be negotiated by somebody. Right. Because the other but he, way, but he would factor into their thinking. It, I think. Well, 
I mean, you know, it, it's very, it's really very difficult to answer that question definitively. I mean, no doubt individuals will look at their own situation, gauge their loyalty, gauge the usefulness of their loyalty at certain moments. You know, people's opinions change depending on the circumstances. But the other way to conduct a coup, of course, is not necessarily to persuade the top, at least a change of regime. They're very keen that we don't call this a coup. Um is is to to do it the way um, you, you, the way it's been done in Venezuela before, which is to go for the mid level officers because they don't share the goodies, and and they are often much closer to the families who, in circumstances like this, are suffering economic um, privation. And you know, Chavez himself was part of a, a coup attempt at that level when he was a relatively junior officer. So it's not just getting the top brass on board. It mm. is you know, if your command structure starts to break down, then you. Can you can kind of operate horizontally. And we've seen a little bit of that, I think, in the images. You know, some National Guard firing on other National Guard, and those are people out on the street, or the people who would have been guarding um, the opposition leader, Leopoldo Lopez, who was released, as you say, from house arrest this morning. Those are relatively junior people. Mm. And so, you know, there is some fraying of in the command structure. It's just impossible to know how far it'll mm. go. And, and also as well, when you when you look at this, Terry, there's there's a real danger that it could that Venezuela could end up becoming I, I don't want to use the word battleground, but certainly the the ring, if you like, where um different countries fight out their own their own uh, issues. Now we've seen this happening mm. in the Middle East. Is there a possibility that Latin America could, could become the first? Because we know that there are countries, some of whom actually in the region, who support Mr Maduro, others who are against him. Going beyond that, you've got the traditional division between Russia, the Chinese and the Americans. Could it be a proxy place? Uh, well, obviously, I very, very much hope not. But yes, you, you're certainly right that uh, you do see these different interests playing out, particularly as regards, you know, supplies of oil are concerned. That's exactly the kind of thing that, that Russia has, has been very concerned about. It's traditionally, you know, been been something, the place where America has, has looked to intervene, you know, looking back into in, into the further past. Um, let's just, let's hope that, you know, at the moment, it's very interesting looking at some of the international reactions, say, uh, from Canada, you had the the foreign minister there, Christian Freeland, saying we are watching this very closely. The people are being very cautious internationally, with the possible exception of of Mike Pompeo, who was a fairly sort of bombastic tweet earlier on in the day mm. saying and also democracy cannot be defeated. You know, mm. so um, yeah, you, there are quite a lot more voices of caution. But the question, you know, as we already say, is, is who who is going to listen to the you know the moderate voice of of caution and let's not rush into this. And actually, to you know, one of the first priorities, you know, ought to really ought to be to try and get. You were talking about the aid earlier to try and get some supplies and, and some create some stability in the country that, that you know, where it's obviously in very short supply. Mm-hmm. There are some big unknowns here too. We don't actually know what military preparations the United States may or may not have made. You may remember the, the great legal pad scandal when um, Mike, Mike Pence's legal pad appeared to say 6,000 troops to, to Colombia, which is, of course, just next door um, and, and sympathetic to the United States. The United States... Um, the, in the Twitter war, the US has been accusing Cuba of having troops in the country. Cuba's been denying it. I personally don't think there's any appetite in the region for for armed conflict, frankly. Most of the neighbours are on the side of the opposition in Venezuela, I mean, one or two exceptions. But I don't think those exceptions would be keen to fight. Mm, and certainly in the case of the United States, Terry, it has a very tortured history 
in Latin America. So even if Donald Trump himself would be quite happy to go in, presumably you'd have the likes of John Bolton for all his hawkishness who would say, no, 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 we have to stand back from this one. Yeah, I think, I mean, the idea of, as Isabel says, getting involved in any kind of actual, you know, military conflict on the ground is, is you know, at the moment, it seems unlikely. Um, but again, there's always the question of, you know, of influence, of the broader influence, economic, political, you know, financial, how that plays out and, mm. and who is supported and who is backed and, you know... And who, who who the other international governments are are, are looking to, to shore up. Yeah. I mean, there has been a tweet that's come through from the Ecuadorian Foreign Minister, Jose Valencia, who's tweeted, the government of Ecuador renews its firm support of President Juan Guaido in the difficult times which Venezuela is living. We hope for a peaceful transition without bloodshed, of course. The big issue is what's going to happen on Wednesday when uh, this call for everyone to gather in opposition to the president, if it is heeded. But let's move on now, in fact, to um, another of the top stories that we're following. This involves Huawei because Britain and America pride themselves on their decades-old special relationship, which has seen them working closely together in the economic, cultural and political spheres. However, that relationship could be about to hit the rocks because of a proposal by the UK government to allow Huawei, the Chinese telecoms company, to supply equipment for its 5G network. America claims that Huawei's links to the Chinese government make it a major security risk, and it has warned that its intelligence ties with Britain could be at risk or in danger if the government doesn't row back from its decision. So, Isabel, is the United States trying to bully Britain into backing down or are its fears about Huawei justified? Oh, I think everyone's trying to bully Britain on this one. <laughs> but I mean, that's, you know, that's the joy of being imminently post-Brexit, yeah, that, that you are eminently bullyable. The the Chinese ambassador, Liu Xiaoming, wrote an editorial, you know, trying to bully Britain just the other day, saying, don't listen to the United States or we China will be very cross. To your question, there are certainly serious uh, security concerns in, with Huawei, and there always have been. You know, after the first uh, major purchase of Huawei equipment, which was for the 4G network, the House of Commons Intelligence and Security Committee reviewed that decision and pretty much had had kittens and said, you know, we need to have a permanent kind of um, a permanent operation which is reviewing millions of lines of code to make sure that there are no back doors. So they set up GCHQ, our, our um, digital security, cyber security um, center, set up um, a monitoring uh, operation on the Huawei, existing Huawei equipment. It reported quite recently that they hadn't found any back doors, but that 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 the software was really ropey, which was kind so of... So it's more of a quality <laughs> issue. Would it work for them? It was more of a quality issue. But the, but the security issue, there are two things. One is that when you go to 5G, it's much less straightforward you know it's it's much harder to contain um and and this and much more important because it'll be the basis of you know all kinds of aspects of national mm. life and, and the security system as we know but the second thing is that you know huawei is clearly not a private company you know it has a very opaque structure in which it is allegedly owned by uh, its workers um, who appear to be constituted into a trades union about which it is impossible to discover anything how decisions are made who's on the board who i mean this is absolutely a chinese operation but then let's be a little bit controversial here terry how much of this is about intelligence threats dodgy equipment which um, may be made below standards which are acceptable to us 
and how much of it is about Chinese trade wars and America perhaps being seen to get the upper hand on this? It's partly about that. I think uh, in British terms also, um, it's partly about uh, domestic politics. I mean, if you look at the argument that we had last week within within the cabinet, essentially within the National Security Council, and then so uh, where it was it was leaked. You know, the, this decision was sort of leaked in advance, and people's uh, concerns about it were leaked in advance. And now there appears to be, uh, you know, an inquiry going on into you know to how, into how this came about. Uh, there is obviously a row going on within the UK as to the level to which we should be concerned about this. And we've seen, you know, for instance, uh, Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary, is saying there should be a degree of caution because of the Chinese law that he was quoting that requires Chinese companies to cooperate with the intelligence services, whereas at the same time, you've got, you know, the Chancellor trying to go and be a bit more mm. diplomatic with, with the Chinese government. And so, you know, yes, again, this plays into, as you said, it plays into Britain's role in the world after Brexit as to, you know, which, which way do we look in terms of, you know, in terms of security, in terms of technology. And of course, there are, you know, it's not only the United States, to be fair, that it's, you know, as you said earlier, Isabel, sort of making complaints about this. I mean, Australia has got, got big so that's concerns. That's part of the Five Eyes well. Alliance. Part of the, part of the Five right. Eyes. There yeah. is, do seem to be many more people saying that we should, you know, have, have more security concerns about, you know, what we essentially are, would be and might be allowing Huawei to do. But uh, I think we've got to almost step back and take a slightly, you know, a, a bigger view of it. This is obviously all part of, you know, China's expansion. The, one of the reasons that Philip Hammond was there was to talk about the the future of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, you know, to do with infrastructure mm. and, and you know communications and, and and China's role in the world. But yes, the question is, how much influence can Britain have on this? And Britain is just is one part of this. And although we like to think of ourselves as, as being influential, if we're not part of the EU and part of that mm. block, then we have to go. in with somebody. Our, basically, our position is 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 not going to be as as easy to. To, you know, to, to decide. But then it comes back to the basic question, Isabel, that given these concerns about Huawei, as you said, it is, does, it is not transparent in the way that we would expect transparency, very opaque. Would the United States seriously withhold information from the UK because of that Huawei connection? Because that threat, it doesn't just strike at the heart of that special relationship it strikes at the heart of intelligence gathering. Absolutely. And it has been, I mean, that has been very, very clear for, for quite a long time. They've come out and said it publicly. But it has been absolutely clear that the United States has has deep concerns about this. So, you know, in geostrategic terms, you the, what the United Kingdom will have to decide, because these pressures will continue, we're, we're set for a long-running confrontation between China and the United States, is whether... Uh, China can be more than a business partner. And, you know, if you're looking at, at critical national infrastructure, the question is, is this an ally? And I really would find it quite surprising if any British government would decide that that China could be an ally in the sense that the United States has been an ally. It's a Leninist state. It's, you know, a completely different system. It has different mm. strategic... You know, it has no track record of the kind of alliances that, that the United States has built in the post-war right. period. Now, those may be changing, but nevertheless, you would have to make a 50-year bet on nothing going wrong between the UK and China or between China and the United States, your current closest ally, to be comfortable with this. And I wouldn't make that bet. Mm, OK, so let me put that same question to you, Terry. From P Theresa May's perspective, 
she has to look at this in terms of what's going to happen to Britain after Brexit. We're away from the EU high table, assuming we do leave. We've got to make our way somewhere in the world. You've got a president in the United States of America who's upended everything. So given all those factors and looking ahead, is it worth risking your ally in this special relationship, potentially withholding important intelligence material, which could protect us, and by withholding it, opens the door to a hostile entity to harm people in this country? Well, I think if you're looking at it from a British point of view, ultimately you have got to come around with, you know, whatever may have changed in the United States, it's still, you know, it is, it is a democracy. It is essentially on our side in most of these things. If you look at China, not only the Huawei case, but I was when I was researching this, there was another story today about the use of facial recognition in China. And they can, somebody who'd been arrested, they were wanted for a crime, fair enough, but they just happened to be walking through an airport and were, were arrested because of the use of surveillance and facial recognition technology. China's not only using that in its own country, it's now exporting it across the world. And they are not using that in a democratic way. They are not allowing their mm. own people, you know, freedoms. And you know, that that's the choice that you've ultimately got to make. And, you know, you're not ultimately going to side with a, a country that's not allowing its people freedom. OK, so it looks as if we're still going to have that relationship with the United States. So bye-bye, bye-bye Huawei. That's, that, those are the vibes I'm getting off you guys. Well, there's more chance of regime change in the United States than in China. <laughs> Which means bye-bye Huawei. <laughs> You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests, Isabel Hilton and Terry Stiatsi. Now, coming up next, she has survived attempts by MPs to get rid of her. But can the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, defeat a leadership vote from grassroots members of her own party? What's the secret to a happy life? Join us in June in Madrid for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference to find out. We'll be asking the important questions and proffering a few unexpected answers on everything from the future of our cities to deft design, from hospitality to the finer things in life. You'll find counsel from the food players laying the table for success, the entrepreneurs we're backing, and plenty of lessons, scoops and insights gleaned in the Spanish capital and beyond. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference takes place in Madrid from the 27th to the 29th of June. And there's more good news if you're a Monocle subscriber. You get a 10% discount. Head to conference.monocle.com now and watch the film from last year's event and buy your ticket for this year's edition. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Still with me are my guests Isabel Hilton and Terry Stiatsny. Now, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has already survived a leadership challenge from her MPs. But what about one from grassroots members of her ruling Conservative Party? Well, local activists are so incensed at her handling of Britain's attempts to leave the European Union that over 10% of them have signed a petition demanding an emergency vote on her future. It's said to be unprecedented in the party's 185-year-old history and comes as the Conservatives are on course for an almighty drubbing in Thursday's local government elections. So, Terry, isn't this this vote or attempt to get a vote rather pointless, given that no matter how, how many activists vote against her, the decision isn't legally binding. They're stuck with her. Yes, this is a fairly <laughs> uh, kind of obscure bit of, of the Conservative Party. It? It's, it's influential. This is something called the National Conservative Convention. And they're not made up of all the grassroots members. They represent the association chairmen and women. So, 
although they're very influential in the party, they're not the absolute grassroots grassroots. So it's if more you a like. symbolic vote. It's more of a symbolic vote. Also, it takes time to organise because this emergency procedure hasn't hasn't happened before. It needs a minimum of 28 days. And I think she faces much, much bigger bumps in the road before this happens. You know, Before the end of the week, we've got the local elections coming up. You know, if they manage to have this emergency meeting, she, we, we may have had the European, we're likely to have had the European elections between now and then. So, you know, she has to get through uh, those much bigger hurdles. Um, and I think the problem is, though, that these association chair people who are uh, understandably, you know, many of them are very irate, they are the people that are supposed to be going out at the, at the moment this week trying to organise teams of leafleters, teams of canvassers to go out and deliver leaflets and, and have dogs bark at them and have people shout at them in the street. And many of them are just saying... We don't. We can't get anyone to do it. We're not doing it. We don't support the government, and we're not going out, you know, to campaign for you as we normally would. And so, you know, I think it's the crisis. You know, at the next of the crises is more likely to come sooner rather than later before it comes to that. And Isabel, you have to ask yourself, is it really about the way that she's handled the Brexit negotiations? Or is it more to do with the fact that those association chairmen can't stand the fact that she's talking to Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party? Well, to be fair, I think it's probably both. <laughs> but I mean, the question in my mind, is it going to be a Tory party left to lead for anybody in the end of this? <laughs> and who'd I, want you know, the job? <laughs> and who'd want the job? Well, it's amazing that people always do want these jobs. I mean, what a what a disaster... But if were this were this process to to you know follow through, were she to be uh, defenestrated as a result of this move, then you would then you would have, um, and then you would have the Tory Party choosing the Prime Minister again. So you'd effectively have a hundred and twenty thousand completely unrepresentative of people, I mean, unrepresentative of the country, choosing the Prime Minister in the middle of a national crisis. I mean, honestly, Ada, how much worse can all of this get, frankly? I think it can still, it can still, <laughs> go. I mean, can it still reason, get worse. Oh I, I think, it, I'm afraid, I mean, certainly from the Conservative point of view, if you look at how many seats they're likely to lose in, mm. in these local elections, I mean, these these were seats that were last up for election in 2015. It was an election that was held on the same day as the general election, and that was the election where David Cameron unexpectedly, you know, won his majority outright. So, you know, the Conservatives were riding relatively high at that point. So come sometime on Friday when we've got those results, in, it's going to look most likely like a bigger drop. Um, one of the few things that may help Theresa May out is that the, the Labour Party is, is also in trouble. Um, and you've also got Labour activists who are, again, because of divisions over Brexit, very reluctant to go out on the stump for, for Jeremy Corbyn. Because it, it's actually quite a dangerous job these days if you're campaigning in the local elections. It shouldn't be dangerous, but Emotions people have been physically running assaulted. running very high, yes. But, and I think that as this plays out, I mean, one of the interesting things to me would be whether, you know, third parties really do manage to have a showing either in the local elections or in the European elections because that's going to be some indication of what's going to happen to our political system if if the smoke ever clears away from all of this. And I think something quite profound has changed. We've mm -hmm. had a binary system first past the post on the understanding that this, you know, was unfair, but it essentially delivered stability and order and all those kind of British virtues. That is clearly no longer true. And Brexit has broken that system. Mm. And, you know, we might just get to a point where in the House of Commons there is the possibility of passing, for example, electoral reform, which would yeah. be at least one outcome of this appalling crisis mm. that one could Not afford. our finest moment as a nation. But Indeed. let's move on now to Japan, where the country marked 
marks the end of an era earlier today when Emperor Akihito abdicated from power, handing authority to his eldest son, Crown Prince Naruhito, who will ascend the throne on Wednesday. 85-year-old Akihito, who was given permission to abdicate after he said he could no longer continue in his role, is the first Japanese emperor to stand down in more than 200 years. And I'd like to get your take on, on both, well, both of your, your take on this, because I don't know if you saw the, the ceremony today, but you really got a sense of history unfolding before your eyes. Well, that, that's how I felt. I mean, did, did you guys get that sense of, of things, Isabel? Yes, I think. And it's quite a moving moment for Japan because after all this, you know, this particular emperor has has been a fairly historic figure too. You know, he 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 took over from Hirohito, who was, you know, deeply implicated in <laughs> Japan's performance in in the in the Second World War and military aggression. And he took over a Japan that had a lot of healing to do. Mm. And he absolutely transformed the role of the emperor. They became accessible. They went out and talked to people. He was absolutely committed to uh, the pacifist Japan, which emerged from 1945. And that that's been, an, you know, that has been a really important um, transitional period. And, and, and Terry, um, under Naruhito, he's talked about an era of reiwa, beautiful harmony. I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> I suppose if you come in after your father has reigned for 30 years and as Isabel says, has you know, given the country stability, made uh, the monarchy more approachable and sort of more in touch with people, you, you want to continue a certain, that level of... Of stability, I suppose. I mean, I think it's it's interesting that with this abdication, Japan has been able to to plan for it. This is something that has happened, as you say. There's a, a very formal ceremony, a staged process. People have, you know, people have had extra holiday time, so they know what they're going to expect, and so you know, presumably that has made people's you know, more more able to deal with this rather than, you know, when when uh, Akihito took over, this was obviously after, you know, after the shock of his father's death. Mm. Um, so I think people will get used to that, but I can't I imagine it will still be, you know, very emotional for, for many people in the country. Absolutely. We're going to have to leave it there because we've reached the end of today's show. So Terry Stiatsny, Isabel Hilton, thank you for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick, and our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next at 1900 hours it's on design with josh fennett and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the monocle daily at 2200